time you have Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. And we have had one tragic Easter Sunday to observe around the rest of the world. Now seeing over 360 innocent souls having been taken from their country in Sri Lanka at the hands of nine suicide bombers. Not individuals who were just coming off of the street and were convinced to commit acts of violence by being promised a pauper's wage, but students, millionaires, company owners, lawyers, individuals who had traveled around the rest of the world, members of Sri Lanka's upper middle class, strapping explosive belts on their selves, going into churches and into hotels, proceeding to commit an act of suicide terrorism. And now we may have one of the largest attacks in the history of suicide terrorism itself. Now, one may ask, why Sri Lanka? Why a country which got over its own civil war 10 years, almost 10 years ago to the day of the attack, if it had been one month later, May 19th, 2019, it would have been the day that the Sri Lankan civil war had ended when you had the Buddhist majority fighting against the uh, Hindu, Christian, and Muslim minority groups amongst the the Tamil ethnic group, the Tamil ethnic minority. And for those who are not familiar with the 30-some-year-long civil war that took place between the Tamil Tigers, as they were known, also a group that used suicide terrorism, but not for religious reasons. They perpetrated those attacks because of ethnic and and ethno-sectarian reasons that took place against the Sinhalese majority, the Sinhalese being the group that controls most of southern Sri Lanka. This was a different attack of a different nature, one that had nothing to do with those Tamil Sinhalese ethnic tensions, but had everything to do with the continued unabated usage of terrorism by Islamist groups. In this specific instance, in the last few months, this follows a pattern of Islamist organizations. In this case, we see that it was a local group that entered into cooperation with a global group. The NTJ, or NJT, is now cooperating with ISIS. If no one had heard of the NJD before, it's because the only thing that they had been known for up until about four days ago when these attacks took place was their vandalizing of some statues of Buddha in Colombo, Sri Lanka's capital. But we do have knowledge of some 35 individual Sri Lankans having traveled to Syria to fight with ISIS from 2011 until 2019. And it looks as if, though, those expatriate terrorist fighters that were in Syria brought back with them some grand designs of exporting their alleged jihad and struggle, or in this case, their terrorist tendencies, back to their homeland. 
The bombers themselves, as we said at the opening top of the segment, came from all different walks of life. One man owned a copper factory, which is where the suicide vests were allegedly assembled. Another man was the son of a spice trader. He and his wife partook in the attacks. He said he was going on a business trip to Zambia, but ended up going to a church and killing himself along with some 28 other people. The family members have instantaneously denounced the involvement of their family members themselves who were involved in these attacks. But over 40 different individuals were arrested in the last 72 hours since the attack took place. We'll have on the program a little bit later today, Rear Admiral Dharmendra Wetawiya, the current Minister of Defense's attache for the government of Sri Lanka in the United States, and also an individual who is involved on a first-hand basis for 25 years in the fight against Sri Lanka's ethnic uprising, which took place when the Tamil Tigers launched their rebellion in the 1980s. But the questions that I will be asking of him will not focus necessarily on the Sri Lanka attack, but on what we believe to be some errors that may have taken place on behalf of the Sri Lankan government that may have not caused, but perhaps given the government the inability to respond to these attacks, some instances of what I believe should be brought up. And and, and, and I think that the defense attache should be incumbent to answer. Include number one. Was the government aware of the attacks beforehand? According to foreign press reports, some elements of the government were familiar. Number two, has Sri Lanka become complacent during the last 10 years of peace that resulted as the defeat of the Tamil Tigers led to a new era of relative stability in the country? And three, is there a need to have a larger Southeast Asian, if not global, coalition to fight organizations like ISIS that goes beyond the focus on geography like Syria and Iraq, or in some cases, the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or Afghanistan, or even Nigeria, where ISIS affiliates have reared their heads, and to start forming a global coalition against Islamist ideology, because it seems as if though wherever this idea becomes part of the public discussion, its pernicious nature ends up resulting in political violence carried out by its supporters. Another item that we hope to discuss on today's program includes an interview with Dalia Ghanam, a resident scholar at the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut, Lebanon. Now. Dahlia, and I've been reading her stuff for the past uh, two or three months since my interest in Algeria has really peaked. The president there has stepped down. You have negotiations going on between the protest leaders and the military. The same case is going on in Sudan right now, and I'm still trying to find the most appropriate person to speak about that tomorrow. 
But the instance with what we may be able to discuss with the Algerian example is by having someone like Dahlia come on where – now, now, here's the thing. Lebanon is not uh, unfamiliar with sectarian crisis. We have Shia, Druze, Sunni Muslims, Maronite Christians, and a few other different ethnic groups that have found more or less a way to be able to live together with some uh, lessened tensions. But at the same time, we also find ourselves in the situation where the government is always able to be a little bit more flexible there. So perhaps there's an example of how Algeria and Sudan, which has its own uh, certain amount of intersectarian strife, to learn from Lebanon's example. We'll be back with these two guests and more after these messages. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Talk Philadelphia. And while we wait for our first guest to join us, I thought that it might be good to give a little bit of a download on what we've been up to at the forum, just to give you guys some preview of what we can expect for our spring programming. First and foremost, 
We are celebrating the Forum's 25th anniversary in New York City on May 19th with some great guest speakers. We've already announced Ambassador to the United States from the State of Israel, Ron Dermer, who will be joining us, will be announcing a very big speaker a former foreign minister of one of America's greatest allies, sometime later this week. We'll also be honoring uh, some members of a European government. We have the uh, fellow of the year. We have our board member of the year. It's really just going to be a great time when we're going out there. And besides that, we'll also be launching a trip to Poland, Hungary, and Austria to better understand what's going on with the Eastern European issues that we've been speaking a lot about, and especially the intersection with the migrant issues that they've been facing. But now I am honored to be joined in this moment of solace and solemn occasion by Rear Admiral Dharmendra Watawiya, presently assigned to the Sri Lankan Embassy in the United States as the uh, attache for defense. He has functioned as the general operations Director of General Operations of the Sri Lankan Navy since May of 2015 until he joined his current assignment. Rear Admiral Watawa joined the Sri Lankan Navy as an officer cadet in January of 1984. And in 2014, he attended the National Defense College in New Delhi, where he completed his Master of Philosophy degree in Strategic Security Studies with a first-class distinction. Rear Admiral, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm so sorry that this is the occasion on which we have the opportunity to speak for the first time. Your military career speaks for itself. I'm sure having been involved for the last two, three, four decades in Sri Lanka defense and security policy, you um, saw your fair share of action against the LTTE, or for our listeners who aren't familiar with that designation, the Tamil Tigers up until the end of the Civil War in 2009. Can you please tell us, just to start off our conversation, what happened in Colombo, across the, the island in, in, in um, Batichon, and in some of the Colombian suburbs this last Sunday on Easter Sunday and tell us the latest news on what you think we as Americans should know about the tragedy that took place in your country. Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you for your condolence messages and thank you for the uh, pouring in American support that the our country and then this uh, mission has received. Well, what uh, has happened, what happened on Easter Sunday has uh, uh, shocked the whole nation, stunned and devastated. We, uh, uh, all of us who are in, uh, in in this embassy and then in in this country, uh, there have been series of attacks on Easter Sunday uh, churches early in the morning. Uh, about three churches on three churches and then another three hotels where uh, most of the uh, tourists and others were having the uh, Easter. Easter Sunday breakfast. So I, uh, it has caused, uh, as of now, the death toll has gone beyond 350 or 500 injured. I think one of the worst uh, uh, 
devastated terrorist attack devastating terrorist attacks uh, since 9/11 uh, the country uh, has reacted well uh, our security forces have reacted well uh, very promptly uh, managed to uh, take the wounded uh, taken care of the wounded the hospitals have functioned very well uh, but then uh, the grief and then the shock uh, has uh, sprung across the whole country and then uh, uh, i think it will take some time for us to uh, overcome this but the good thing uh, uh, the silver lining is that the people have stayed very very calm they are helping each other the blood donation stations have uh, flooded with people the religious leaders have got together uh, so i think as as a country uh, we we are we are trying to heal ourselves uh, look beyond this but then it will be a very hard road ahead so traditionally the ethnic and ethno sectarian tensions that took place in sri lanka took between the buddhist majority and the hindu minority i mean if we look at history the the muslim and christian communities maybe christian to a lesser extent because some of their leadership was present in the ltte but it was it was an ethnic conflict that took place between the sinhalese and the tamil but now we have some eight or nine attackers a support network in in the realm of a few dozen individuals connected allegedly connected to a global islamist affiliate in the form of ISIS in the form of the Islamic state and just like cases of terrorism that took place against christian churches in indonesia in the philippines by let's call it their their um their cousins in blood we now have the same situation taking place in sri lanka so do you think that these attacks signal a change in how a minority within Sri Lanka's Muslim minority is uh, launching a campaign against government interests, and if so, is there a religious nature behind this, or is this just a one-off attack? Well, let, let me start with saying that the uh, terrorist issue, the insurgency that we had uh, for two and a half decades, which ended in two thousand nine, was not on any way religious lines. Uh, well, uh, uh, predominantly the Tamils are uh, from Hindu, but then there's a, a substantial portion of Tamils who are Christians and Catholics also. Uh, and then the issue between uh, the majority Sinhalese and then the Tamils was uh, uh, not on any of the religious lines. Uh, uh, you will find every Buddhist temple having a Hindu core in our country, every uh, Buddhist temple. So uh, it was an ethnic issue. It was a issue of power devolution of power uh, the causes which was running beyond the uh, time of independence that we gained out uh, in 1948 so that was that has historical roots but we never had uh, issues between religions well we have had some uh, little uh, skirmishes between uh, the buddhist uh, uh, community religious community
community and then the Muslim community, very minor incidents, uh, but then uh, there are a lot of attention to that internationally last year, but then uh, we never had any issue with the uh, religious uh, my, uh, communities uh, as, a, as a whole. We never. I think uh, everyone who has, following, uh, who has been following Sri Lanka knows that. Well, uh, to your question specifically, um, whether this is an isolated incident, uh, we would all, all of us would like to think so, but then uh, as for the intelligence that is coming up, there have been these uh, organizations, groups which are very radical, uh, uh, extremist groups have been operating uh, in Sri Lanka, the intelligence uh, uh, community has been following this, international intelligence has also supported us with that assessments, but uh, uh, and then, uh, as we all know now, there have been some warnings uh, which uh, actionable uh, intelligence which uh, have not been shared properly, and then the government is looking at that. But uh, I, I think uh, these are not the fault line of our society. Our society's fault line or DNA has never been uh, on religious lines. Uh, as I said, the causes for the uh, ethnic countries were different. The fault line is uh, that we saw on uh, Easter Sunday are uh, global trends that we are seeing on for the last two or three decades. As we all know, uh, the radical uh, organizations uh, with ideologies have inspired uh, the Sri Lankan group that have gone on this rampage with uh, about six to seven suicide attackers um, contributing uh, with this uh, devastation. So uh, we hope, uh, well, there are a lot of things uh, thing that we, uh, as a country we need to do uh, to be assured of uh, uh, complete stability. But at the same time, uh, I personally think that this this uh, is not something that will we can expect to continue. Uh, because, uh, but still, the radical organizations will have to be dealt with and brought into justice if we are to say that our country is uh, completely secure. Now, I, I've seen that the uh, president has authorized the military to use the same sort of measures that were adopted against the Tamil Tigers. Do you think the government might adopt similar methods that it used to crush the Tigers in its pursuit against Islamist militants in Sri Lanka? Well, I have to uh, differ a little bit with you, Greg, in that, you know, what the, what the president has ordered is, well, during, up to 2009, the country uh, had to operate on emergency regulations. Uh, emergency regulations are very tough. You can detain people more, more than 24 hours. Uh, uh, you can keep uh, um, suspects under custody. Uh, now, uh, what we have done at this moment is uh, not in any way to say that we are going to use, uh, you know, a crush any uh, organization, but the emergency, uh, certain amount of emergency power, certain closures have been activated by a gazette notification allowing uh, the military to uh, involve with the law enforcement of, uh, officers. In our case, it's the police and then other intelligence services coming under the police department, because up to now, uh, even last Easter Sunday, what the military, uh, the, the tri-services did was to respond uh, in an emergency crisis as in any other country uh, would respond. But then for them to get into the uh, depth of this, support the investigations, uh, do screening, and then uh, 
keep the uh, uh, suspected personnel or areas under surveillance. You need the uh, support of the uh, military. They are very, very capable. They have a lot of skills and capacity. So what the president has done is to authorize the military to be uh, uh, involved in these uh, operations. I don't think those regulations will be in power forever or for a longer period of time, but for the specific reasoning of going after these uh, groups uh, in helping the law enforcement. And then I, I don't see any parallels as such with the way that we dealt with the uh, Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. It's a totally a different uh, organization. And then this, uh, I think, is uh, 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 totally different. A uh, lot of countries, including United States of America, UK, Israel, and other, even Interpol, uh, is involving with us uh, uh, with the experience of uh, global um, anti-radicalization uh, uh, extremist organizations, how to handle those. So I, I think it will be a coordinated effort, not only the military getting uh, uh, power that, as you, you, you mentioned, it will be a very measured uh, response, Greg. And I, and I, I think that regardless of the uh, severity of the response that the Sri Lankan government adopts against the small minority. We, we have a saying on this program where we say that um, radical Islam is the problem, but moderate Muslims are the solution. And if you look at the breakdown in Sri Lankan's Islamic community, 99.9% of, of those who practice Islam in Sri Lanka are working with the government. There was reports that one of the main representative bodies of Sri Lanka's Islamic community was actually urging the government to take actions against this NTJ, the NJT group that was uh, allegedly at least partially responsible for these bombings. So you have members of your own Muslim community saying, focus on the national Thawheed Jamath group. They are not representing Sri Lanka Islam. But the reason I, I, I bring this up is because the um, general idea, which has been peddled by a few Sri Lankan media outlets, that this attack is a response to what happened in New Zealand at the Christchurch attack on February, I believe it was um, 15th. Meaning that that we had, or it was a little, actually a little bit later, but regardless, that these individuals had some five weeks to plan their attack, eight coordinated military vests, intelligence, reconnaissance, being able to bring in the explosives. My supposition here is, is that this cell was perhaps acting as a sleeper cell and was already set up ready to commence an attack somewhere in Sri Lanka or perhaps use it as a bridge into India. And this problem has been going on for a lot longer rather than the five weeks that, that took place since March 15th, 2019, when that tragedy took place in New Zealand. So my question is here, you are focused on what the domestic response is to the Islamist issue that was responsible for the Easter Sunday bombing. How will Sri Lanka take part in the larger global coalition against this group, ISIS, NJT, whatever we want to call it? 
Yeah, the, the, you know, let, let me start with saying that, as you clear, very correctly pointed out, uh, that uh, the majority Muslim community, the, the absolute majority, if I may say, uh, uh, is working with the Sri Lankan community. Uh, the, the, you know, the most uh, um, uh, influential uh, Muslim political leadership is in the cabinet of this government. They are working hand in hand. Uh, in fact, you know, all the press conferences you would have seen the uh, Muslim uh, political leadership uh, sits with the uh, government uh, uh, political leadership um, in trying to explain the situation and then urging people to uh, act with restraint. I mean, I must say that there was uh, the people who acted in a very matured way. Uh, 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 then I, I think you are very right uh, that the uh, Muslim, uh, it, 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 that was the case throughout the, uh, with any other governments, you know, most of the Muslim leaders were working with the government uh, and then uh, I think there is uh, no discrimination in their treatments uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, in response to your question of as to whether this is, uh, uh, is a retaliation with uh, to the incident that happened in Mar late March in uh, Christchurch, well there have been certain suggestions uh, in the uh, media and then certain analysts have come up and said, uh, come up you know, with this uh, notion that this could have been a retaliation because the nature of the attack, uh, it was Easter Sunday, uh, the churches were attacked, and then the uh, tourist community uh, was at targeted. So uh, mm, obviously, uh, this type of analysis uh, will come. But then I think uh, the uh, force that uh, have been mustered, uh, the capacity and the capability that this government has been uh, able to muster to do the investigations with the uh, international support, especially the countries that I mentioned earlier, uh, will lead us, I am very pretty sure, will lead us to a very, very clear conclusions uh, and a clear picture would emerge um, sooner than later uh, as to what the uh, real motive of the uh, of the perpetrators were. Uh, I am confident because of the, uh, because of the uh, scale and then the capacity of the uh, support that we have got, uh, we will get a very clear picture. Uh, um, as to what whether this was a sleeping cell, uh, I, I, I think uh, reasonably we can come to that conclusion uh, because, as you said, within five weeks it will be very difficult to uh, plot and plan such a well-coordinated effort, uh, one in the eastern coast uh, and then the rest in the western coast, uh, churches, hotels, etc. Uh, but then, uh, as you said, uh, the, even the intelligence community has been following many of the, uh, these groups and then many of these individuals. The fact that we have not taken uh, much severe action as far as arresting them and prosecuting them uh, has haunted us and has boomerang on us. So uh, this puzzle between whether this was uh, um, uh, uh, retaliation to the Christchurch will, I think, uh, emerge. And to your question with uh, the the uh, cell has been working, uh, uh, you know, the radicalization and then the organization, the capacity work there, yes. Uh, and I would add that uh, some international uh, logistics and then the planning support must have come, must have certainly come for them to plan this with such sophistication. I think all that uh, I'm pretty sure will uh, come out without the investigation that are going on.
Rear Admiral Dharmendra Watawa, we are with you in uh, the U.S. and, and, and Sri Lanka. Uh, us as a research institute will be following this case further. If you or your embassy ever need any help from us or our fellows or our staff, or you just want to come back on the program again and update us, we thank you for sharing us this vital information this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you for all the assistance that uh, the United States as a country and other organizers has given us. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. After these messages, we'll be joined by Dr. Sarah Foyer, an expert on politics and religion in North Africa. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. And I am very excited to be able to bring our next guest live from Tel Aviv onto this program, Dr. Sarah J. Foyer an expert on politics and religion in North Africa, and a senior fellow in the Washington Institute's Gadol program on Arab politics. Dr. Foyer is the author of Regulating Islam, Religion in the State in Morocco and Tunisia from the Cambridge University Press, published just last year, and is also a term member on the Council on Foreign Relations. She's currently expanding that research eastward, examining the evolving form and tenor of state Islam in the Gulf. And moreover, and this is why we brought her onto the program today, she has extensive experience in the region, including stints living in Tunisia, Morocco, Jordan, and Israel. Dr. Foyer, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. We've been watching what's been going on in Algeria, in Sudan, arguably the last two countries that have had their dictators, autocrats, their military industrial regulation complex is being overthrown in the last few weeks, if not months. But before we get to that subject, I just want to get really quick your thoughts on what happened on Sunday in Sri Lanka. This might be kind of a curveball question here, but do you, do, do you believe that this was a 
ISIS-inspired attack insofar as you had some 35 to 40 Sri Lankans uh, fighting with the ISIS co- the, 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 the pro-ISIS coalition, if, if we call it, in Iraq and Syria before being repatriated to their country at the end of 2018? Or was this part of a larger ISIS-coordinated, planned, uh, supplied, funded attack like we've seen in the Philippines and Indonesia in the last few months? Um, so I, uh, it, it is a curveball, but that's okay. Curveballs are, are sometimes fair enough. Um, I, my sense from a distance, though, uh, and there are people who are following this much more closely, um, my sense is that the sophistication of this attack uh, suggests that it's, it, it, it may very well be more than just an inspired one. Um, this required a fair amount of direction and coordination, um, and so it's possible that even if the so-called caliphate is uh, on the out, um, that ISIS or related groups are going to be reemerging in this kind of a setting in which it, it, these are not very um, – these locales are sort of unsuspecting. They may not be as well prepared to, to handle the threat, but that's a that's – a, just an impression from uh, from somewhat of a distance. So back to the subject at hand, and thank you for that brief analysis. Our listeners have often uh, maybe heard of Algeria. They've, they've read about the colonial conquest of the French in the 1830s and 40s of Algeria itself. But now we see this president of the country, Abdel Talif, that, that took control at the, uh, you know, I guess the height of the Algerian civil war between Islamists and the military there in the 1980s and early 1990s. And there's been relative quiet from the country from the end of the civil war until only a few months ago. Can you give us sort of an Algeria 101 breakdown post-presidency, how it came to be and what we can expect from that country and also why it's important for us in the United States to know about it? Sure. So um, as you noted, Abdelaziz Bouteflika became the country's president as it was emerging from what had been a a pretty devastating 10-year civil war. Uh, He came into office in 1999. Um, That war had essentially pitted uh, Islamist movements and parties uh, against uh, the military and other state security apparatuses following uh, uh, the the military's intervention after it seemed that the Islamists were going to win an election um, in the late 80s. So it was a a very difficult um, uh, decade, uh, several hundred thousand deaths, and Bouteflika came into this uh, situation and I think was, was widely... Uh, praised and and retained a personal kind of popularity uh, for having at least been associated with, if not himself, helped the country emerge from that very difficult period. Um, and you know, the the uh, under his in his tenure, uh, it was an increasingly autocratic system. It was also for a while thanks in in part to rising oil prices. Uh, a, a boon for the Algerian economy. The the economy has relied almost exclusively on revenues from the sale of oil and gas. 
It's one of the largest um, exporters in Africa. It's uh, the third largest provider of gas to Europe, for example. So its energy economy um, was supported and um, and really furthered by something like you know roughly 15 years of of rising oil prices. Um, but that started to come kind of crashing down with the the plunge in oil prices that we saw in 2014. Algeria managed to escape the largely escape the tumult of 2011, which, as you mentioned in your introductory remarks, you know swept through the region and, and knocked off quite a few uh, autocrats and dictators. Algeria sort of remained immune to that in part because the state was able to dole out. Uh, you know, uh, money and benefits that it had accumulated over the years, thanks to its oil sales um, and gas, I should say, but really the hydrocarbon uh, economy allowed it to do that. But in 2014, when the crash came, um, you know, this is what this is what can happen with these rentier economies that are very uh, vulnerable um, to uh, market shifts, and so. You know, all of a sudden, the state was not really able to provide uh, in the same way. You couple that with uh, an aging and very frail president. Bouteflika himself suffered a stroke in 2013 and had really not been seen in public. Um, and so the prospect of this 82-year-old man uh, running for yet another fifth, what would have been a fifth five-year term, I think was the kind of final straw for the hundreds of thousands of Algerians who took the, to the street in February. So now we have this division between the street leaders, the protest leaders, let's call it Algerian civil society for lack of a better term. On one side, mm -hmm. you have the military being led by Ahmed Gaid Salah, the army chief of staff on the other side. <clears throat> Excuse right. me. And you also have some uh, actions by by not just trying to not depose, but encourage Bouteflika to not run for another term, but some of those closest to him, arguably those who benefited from his largesse steering the Algerian economy. An example that I would point out to would be the imprisonment of Isad Rabrab and another four Algerian billionaires, all responsible for basically running and benefiting off of the day-to-day -day operations of Algeria's hydrocarbon resource-based economy. So the top leadership, along with Bouteflika, those who were responsible for economic measures, part of his cabinet, those non-military leaders that are neither on the side of the protesters or on the side of the military, are now feeling the wrath of the Algerian judiciary. What's next in Algeria? Yeah, so I think that you're, um, you're you're pointing to a really interesting dynamic, and it's it's one that I think to some extent we've even seen starting to develop in Sudan, and and it's one that I should mention we saw in other places like Tunisia and elsewhere, which is to say that um, in the Algerian case, the military essentially um, took, uh, for better of a lack of for, for lack of a better word took control of the situation once it was, um, you know, once it was determined that the street protests were not going to die down. And it, it, in a sense, it culminated in the announcement on April 2nd that Bouteflika was out. Now, what we've seen is in, in, uh, since then 
is Gayed Salah, as you noted, consolidating somewhat his own position within the what we can kind of refer to broadly as the security apparatus, which is which includes the military, but not only the military. So you've seen dismissals of certain um, intelligence chiefs, um, and and generally an attempt by Gayed Salah to both sort of speak on behalf of the state and also um, consolidate his own position within the military and the broader security apparatus. But you've also seen um, a push, and one can only presume that the push is being led by folks in the military, um, to round up some of the uh, individuals most closely associated with the business community that had, as you alluded to, not only benefited from the the system, so to speak, under Bouteflika, but had also really kind of propelled it and advanced, um, and advanced it. And I think in the eyes of many Algerians, these business uh, elites, uh, not only them, I think the military retains popularity, but there are problems there too. The impression for many of these Algerian protesters is that these business elites represent really the epitome of the corruption that was uh, so endemic to uh, this system. And so it's very possible that the assumption on the part of Guide Salah and others now is if we round up some big fish, we throw them into jail, it may it may just be enough to uh, appease the protesters to prevent the situation from getting totally out of hand. Um, but it's a big question mark, and that leads to your 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 the last question you posed, which is what what is really going to happen next? So we have on the one hand the protests continuing for the for the most part peacefully. We have on the other hand um, a process that is now ongoing in the parliament there there is a there is a constitutional process uh in place uh for what happens when the presidency is is uh is vacated and so you have an interim president now um he himself is not very popular with the protesters because he's very closely associated with the old regime but there is right, a process he's, he's, he's part of this troika called the three b's belaiz bedoui right. and ben salah who are the um, right. respective so head of the Constitutional is, Council, right. the Prime Minister, and the head of the uh, Upper House of Parliament. Exactly. And so they are now, they've scheduled elections, presidential elections for, I think it's July 4th. Um, there was this 90-day period, that's what the Constitution calls for. And the big question, I think, is going to be, you know, whether between now and July 4th, they can demonstrate to the protesters that this is not going to be more of the same. Um, I think there's a real reluctance on the part of the protesters to accept any proposals coming from representatives of the old regime, because perhaps understandably there's a concern that it would simply just perpetuate, um, perpetuate the old system. The other thing that I would be looking for in these next 90 days is to see what kind of leadership emerges among the protesters. I mean, we haven't really seen... You know, this is kind of a leaderless movement, and leaderless movements are great for, uh, you know, getting the numbers out in into the street. But they can be tricky when it comes to then building a real um, opposition and articulating concrete uh, demands. You asked earlier. I'll just say one last thing about you asked about the implications for the United States. You know, um, Algeria's since. Really, since it emerged from its war of independence with France in the 60s, has had a very deep wariness of uh, relations with uh, with the West. 
Um, it has generally been generally been much closer to Russia. Um, and so I think what you know, but but America has real interest in seeing uh, Algeria remain uh, stable. We've become you know partners in some of the uh, fight against these terrorist groups across uh, North Africa. Um, and so there is a concern that uh, real and long-lasting instability in Algeria uh, could affect some of that security cooperation. It could also have bearing on uh, the hydrocarbon exports to Europe. We don't want to see Europe more destabilized um, by a lack of access to these hydrocarbons. So the United States has some real interests um, in the region. And as such, I think it's going to be watching closely to see what happens with this, um, this, you know, this election and, and the process moving forward. Dr. Forer, I hope we can invite you back maybe the week before the July 4th election takes place or if we have another development in Algeria and perhaps we can also get into the Sudanese issue. But unfortunately, we have one minute left. Any closing thoughts on just the future of North Africa as it relates to American national security interests around the rest of the world? I would just um, maybe say that, you know, one question I think a lot of um, observers and analysts of of North Africa and really of the Arab world more generally are are asking themselves these days is, what what were the lessons that were taken from the experience in 2011? What were the lessons absorbed by protesters and by populations? But also, what were the lessons absorbed by regimes? And to what extent those lessons will conflict or be compatible, I think is going to spell uh, a lot of the trajectory in North Africa uh, moving forward and, and by extension uh, is going to carry real implications for American interests um, in what is really a vital, uh, a vital area. It's the entryway to Africa. It's, it's the Europe's southern neighbor. This, this area matters a lot to us. So stay tuned. Mm-hmm. So what we had beginning with U.S. Marines in Tripoli back during the Barbary Wars is still very much part of the American national security conversation. Uh, Dr. Foyer, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now we're joined by Cliff Smith, the director of the Middle East Forum's Washington Project. Cliff is a graduate of the University of Washington. He has his master's from Pepperdine University and his law degree from the Catholic University. Cliff, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Greg. Good to talk to you again. So, Cliff, you have been in the mud with the American judicial process as it relates to one wonderful law that I know that you love and behold, the Freedom of Information Act. And you have been using this as a tool to try to reveal to our listeners, to our readers, people who are following the forum's work in the broader media, about an agency called the Islamic Relief Agency, which is uh, an al-Qaeda affiliate in Sudan. But you've also used, and then we've reported on that on this program, but you've also used it as a tool to reveal the extent of the U.S.'s cooperation and its investigation into another Islamist group, arguably the world's largest Islamist charity by dollars raised per annum. I'm speaking about Islamic Relief. I thought we'd bring you on at the end of the program just to give us an update on how your work and the work you've been doing with Sam Westrop over at Islamist Watch into Islamic relief has produced results both in Washington, and I understand that there's also some news internationally 
that has benefited from the research that you've done. Can you give us a quick rundown? Uh, well, yes. Uh, Islamic Relief, as you mentioned, is a very large international charity that, uh, frankly, I think has done a pretty good job you know, whitewashing itself. Unlike Islamic Relief Agency, which is admittedly an entirely separate organization, uh, by the way, I've had a nightmare trying to explain that to Hill staffers at various times about the different <laughs> stories. Um, but uh, they have done a pretty good job whitewashing themselves. You know, they're not designated as terrorists in the U.S. anyway, um, or terror financers or anything like that. Nonetheless, the problems persist. Um, what I was able to do with FOIA was um, use the law, unfortunately, not to actually get documents in our government's possession, which... You know, appropriately, there are many documents not subject to FOIA, including those that are relevant to an ongoing um, enforcement investigation. Right. Um, FOIA, just, just so we have, that's the short term, that's the nomenclature for Freedom of Information Act. That's correct. Um, and um, we had a tip from some insiders that Islamic Relief um, was under investigation um, by the federal government. And... While we were not able to produce any documents, what we were able to get was to get them to tell us we can't have particular documents because they are part of an ongoing investigation, which confirmed what we wanted to be able to say publicly anyway. Based so on you have you have sources. the U.S. government admission that in some form or the other might be material witness, it might be as part of an unindicted co-conspirator in a case, it might be just suspicions, but the U.S. government is looking into Islamic Relief's involvement in a criminal matter. Yes, uh, that, um, it, in some enforcement matter, I, yeah, that, is, that is correct. And um, I can further say, without giving many details for the privacy and individual sake, I've had personal conversations with some high-level government people, not only um, um, you know, discussing with them the investigation, but since that came out, but also I'm providing them with updates about our work and our, the report that we came out with last year, which was a comprehensive look at the various problems of Islamic Relief, their ties to the Muslim Brotherhood, um, their funding of various Hamas charities in Gaza, so on and so forth. Um, since then, however, um, I think it is safe to say what has really happened is we've been proven right by events in multiple different ways. Um, and we were right to raise the alarm. Just very recently, um, the Tunisian Commission on Financial Analysis, um, which, again, is a government um, commission in a majority, overwhelming majority Islamic country in Tunisia, um, had a report which admittedly leaked. It was actually intended for prosecutors that says that Islamic Relief uh, was involved in funding jihadists right over the border in Libya. Uh, so, again, we have another, along with the UAE, which is already designated as long as the relief is terror financers, another majority Muslim country saying, look, these are not moderate Muslims. These are not average, everyday mainstream Muslims. These guys are Islamists and radicals that are funding terrorism. Right. Um, so so, so let's, let's just focus on Tunisia for a second. The country has the first Arab revolt in, tw in 2011. It overthrows yeah. its president. It then has elections, and it elects an Islamist party, the Anhada party, to run its parliament. Subsequently, it ejects that Islamist party, not from parliament, but from control of its cabinet and its prime ministerial position. And now you have a pretty um, – I don't, I don't know if I want to say it this way, not multicultural, but a, a multi-partisan coalition in Tunisia that is maybe a, a model Arab democracy. 
And it is saying yeah. that an American organization, an English organization, an organization that has representation in dozens of Muslim-majority states is funding Islamist terrorism in another country. So I, yeah, I don't know what that, better validation you have than that. No, I, I agree entirely. It's uh, Tunisia, um, unlike most of the other countries which had revolts during the Arab Spring, you know, imperfectly, no doubt, but has actually moved to be a real pluralistic democracy. At least, you know, that is the direction they are moving in. There's a long way to go, but they're doing much, much better. And this is, is an indication of it, that they can say, hey, look, we're Muslims and we disagree with the Islamists, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, but, you know, back to Islamists at um, Islamic Relief, and we're going to call out their terror funding. And, you know, we don't know a lot of details about exactly how that's done at this point. Um, we only have their report, um, but I'm sure that we'll be learning more about that in the coming months and years. You, you also have news, I believe, out of the United Kingdom and Germany. We've, we've got about two or three minutes left, so we've got to make this short, but please give us an update. The German government um, has um, um, reported, essentially, that Islamic Relief Germany, which receives 1.3 million euros from German taxpayers, um, is a front for the Muslim Brotherhood. They have basically said that um, it is connections and to and is surrounded by the Muslim Brotherhood and it is by calling it out it becomes the first major Western nation to sort of go on a record saying this. Um, Israel, the UAE, and as I mentioned earlier, Tunisia um, has already been more has called them out, but. Germany sort of, you know, validating this becomes a big deal because so many Western nations, for fear of being called Islamophobic or for fear of whatever political correctness you want to say, has so far um, refused to acknowledge this. I'm hoping that, um, and I know that the UK has been investigating this question as well. Last um, indication that I'm aware of, they haven't really made the determination yet, but their charity commission is looking into the exact thing that the German government has recently declared that these guys are problems, they are Islamists, they're not moderates, and that we need to start paying attention to exactly what it is they're up to. Um, Cliff we, Smith, we we're going to bring you back next week or the week after next to give us a more in-depth update on this. But the conclusion that I surmise from your remarks is, is that it's not just the U.S. looking into Islamic relief. It's Muslim countries, European countries, other Middle Eastern countries. I think they're uh, on the on the ropes. Cliff, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Greg. And that concludes our program today. Sri Lanka, Algeria, the status of American charitable organizations actually co-mingling with terrorist groups. Thanks to Delaney Anchik, our production assistant, Lisa Barbunis, our production coordinator and director of communications, and to all of you for listening to this program. I'm Greg Roman, signing out. We'll be with you next week.